One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, we're on Wood Talk number 129, take two for April 17th, 2013. On today's show, we're going to talk once again about one plane to rule them all, uh, leaving dovetail scribe lines, the difference between some common saws, inspecting an old table saw, using B-grade wood, fixing a warp chair seat, and using epoxy. And I, just to clarify, I did a whole little thing. We recorded about five minutes of the show and then had to do it over because I forgot to arm the tracks that Matt and Shannon are on. So, uh, well, so All that matters is if we can get a transcriptionist, we could send out that newsletter that is a full transcription of Wood Talk, and then that way we can get people's <laughs> addresses and maybe we could get like a whole snail mail thing going on and get really cutting edge. Oh, I like I that. I just think we should release the track of just you and call it the schizophrenic episode. <laughs> just where I just talk to myself. That would be great. Uh, I just recorded over it, but okay. Well, before we go too far, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Hardwood To Go, your source for wood on the web. Visit them online at hardwoodtogo.com and pick your boards or send them an email for a custom order. We're woodworkers just like you, and we're happy to help you find the right wood for your next project. Use coupon code WOODTALK to receive 10% off your order. Offer good till May 31st, 2013. And by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting deja vu with the jet noise. It was I was like, trying to say, how did you do that? You got them to plant, did you semaphore them to come in at the same time? I have a little clicker, and I'm like, right now, guys, here we go, right now. I'm beginning to think you've just got a jet soundtrack that you play. <laughs> you know, a... You're not actually near an Air Force. It's just, yeah, it's just a sound effect, really. Um, you know, actually, he does that whenever I call him. So maybe that's what? Actually, I can't hear you, man. <laughs> Love it. All right, let's move on with the show here. Otherwise, we're going to have to charge the sponsors twice uh, since the people listening live got to hear their <laughs> commercial two times. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah, I'll send the bill in, Shannon. Um, right. Yeah, before we do that, what's going on with that beautiful slab? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about how I was just kind of paralyzed by indecision on what to do with a slab of walnut. I sucked it up sawed it into a bunch of pieces and mm -hmm. planed the whole thing up and jointed it and got it ready into a three-piece tabletop and you know I, i could not be happier so i think the the moral is 
Um, just get over yourself. Just do it. <laughs> and yeah, she, you know. Well, I figured that was copyrighted. I couldn't say that. So <laughs> you know, I'm 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 psyched, and it's just it's a really good use of the slab. I managed to keep the live edges. I've got this great, you know, curl popping up here and there. Great grain match, and uh, you know, I've taken a unique piece of wood and turned it into art. And I'm very proud of me. Cool. That sounds good. What about you, Matt? Well, you know, the big thing for me is actually, for once, I've moved on from my usual domestic woods, and I'm trying my hand at exotics. And this time, it's not just something as small as a ring. I'm working with Teak to make, like, a uh, another shoe. I'm going to call it a stand. I don't know what else to call it. Basically, it's going to have some slats, and we're going to take our shoes off. We're going to set them on there, and if they're wet, they'll just drip right down between the slats and keep everything else nice and dry. Um, I'm really liking this. I have, again, maybe this this is really making me want to broaden my horizons when it comes to exotics because I really enjoyed working with the teak. And it has to be the oils or something because my hands were not as dry as they usually were. In fact, they were really silky smooth when I got done in the shop. I was kind of amazed by it. <laughs> nice. I, I love that you choose to broaden your horizons since they're possibly one of the most expensive wood species out there. You know, the best thing about it was actually a, uh, a an audience member of the show had contacted me a long time ago and sent me some scraps, and we just happened to be talking. He's like, hey, you looking for some more? And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for those. So he asked me particularly what size, and he sent those to me. And on top of it, in the care package came along a, a nice little custom iPhone case for with my logo on it, and then the same with a nice little bag to put my iPad in. So I was like, dude, I totally scored on this. <laughs> nice. Awesome. What did you think about the working properties, just having never used it before? So far, I'm I'm really, really happy with it. The only thing I've done is I've ripped it on the table saw. I've done a little cross cut with it. Um, I I really like it. I I didn't have any major splintering, and I know for a fact that this is not a uh, very sharp blade that I'm working with. This is one that I've had on the the saw for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, so far, I don't know. Maybe I, I just got really lucky with it. Is it is it a, usually a wood that you you kind of run into some complications with? Because, I mean, if if that's the case, this stuff is just absolutely the most amazing thing yet. Well, generally speaking, for me, I tend to use a lot of that stuff. So my bar is set a little bit differently. Like when I use Wangi, they're like, oh, some people online are like, oh, watch your blades. You're going to dull everything. <laughs> I'm like, if I did, I wouldn't even notice, you know, because a lot of the stuff I use is probably dulling my blades, you know, prematurely. So... Um, yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a hardwood like any other, it's definitely going to wear your tools a little bit more than some others, but I don't know that any teak in particular is going to be problematic. Yeah. You always hear that because it's got a really, really high silica content. That's one of the reasons it's such a great exterior wood. Yeah. And what is silica? It's sand essentially grinding down your sharp edges. that I actually even remember Norm Abrams doing a whole, uh, episode. He built an outdoor pedestal table. And he has he spent more time talking about how he would only joint this one back edge of the teak because it dulled his blade. And and it was like you got this impression that like you touch a, a blade to teak yeah. and you just throw it out. You right, know, right. That blade's done for. And you know, I haven't used a lot of it, but I have used a fair amount since I started working at the lumberyard because the teak shed happens to be outside my window. <laughs> and it's uh, I like it. You know, I, the the oily nature of it means that i don't know it just seems like it's always self-lubricating so i don't know i enjoy working with it maybe i'm just getting used to dull blades 
Yeah, that could be there it. You go. Isn't that I don't part notice. of your, your forearm workout is, <laughs> uh, is using dull blades? You put those on there exactly. to get the burn going. Yeah, it just makes me work harder. So that's right. what variable speed on some of those tools is for. You just crank the speed up when the blade gets dull. Oh, right? that makes perfect sense. Yeah, see? Wonderful. I, I guess on a serious side, I, what I'll have to do is I have another project coming up where I'm going to go back to you know my usual domestics, which is either going to be cherry or pine. So I'm going to keep this blade on there and just see how much more of a distance a difference it makes because – if I really have to struggle, especially with the pine to push the blade through, then we definitely know that it's it, it's doing something to mm-hmm. it. But, yeah, now I'm curious. Yeah, let us know. Yeah, definitely. So, anyways, that's that's the big th- happenings in the, in the basement workshop. What about you uh, there, Mark? Uh, I understand you're taking a stand or you're, you're – we're standing on something? Or? Yes. Thank you for just giving a cursory glance to the notes. <laughs> <laughs> Good transition. Um, yeah, actually, I was thinking about this today as I'm, I'm – I, I'm proud to say that the book is finally, I, I don't even want to say winding down because I don't want to jinx it, but it's definitely in the home stretch as we kind of finalize things. And looking back on, on the whole experience, I don't know if this is something that is localized to bloggers, teachers, podcasters, but it's something that I noticed about myself is I typically, when I'm not the one when I don't have an editor looking over my shoulder and I'm just putting things on the website, I like to keep a very open mind. And even in the shop when I'm by myself, I like to have an open mind about what what tools I'm using, what techniques I use to get there. And I like to try a bunch of different things. And I guess some, some folks may see that as somewhat non-committal, which when you're writing a book is not exactly the best way to approach it. Um, they expect you to take a stance on something. So what what's interesting in this last four months or so that I've been uh, really hardcore on this project is I'm really looking at things that I do and trying to figure out what is my stance on that thing. And it's a product of the fact that we are learning from each other constantly and and constantly questioning, are we doing things the best way and trying to keep an open mind to other ways that we may not have tried yet. So I'm just wondering, like, do you guys find that too, both being in a similar position of teaching other people that you find yourself forcing yourself to kind of take a stance on something as opposed to uh, sitting on the fence and giving people the option to do one thing or the other. Um, well, it, as the resident fence sitter, um, <laughs> I, I, it's very hard for me to take a stance. But, you know, to, to be quite honest with you, as I've been going through like the, the, the past several years of content that I have, I, I have noticed slowly and very slowly, I think I am actually starting to become more comfortable with telling people and reaffirming with people that, this is the way that I, I prefer to do it. It doesn't mean that it's the right way or it's the best way, but it's the way that works probably the, the best for me. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate what you're saying. And maybe I'll even give that a shot just for the heck of it. But I, I have noticed, you know, personally that I am definitely starting to become a little bit more, I won't say rigid in my ways, but mm-hmm. I'm just way more comfortable with what I've been doing versus early on, it was like, Oh, well, if you're saying that, then it's not the way I'm doing it. Then you must be right. And I must be wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a little bit of self-reflection. It's, it's one of those things where as someone who tries to, uh, to teach this uh, stuff to a lot of different people, I like to allow for a possibility that yes, this is my way, but this is not necessarily the best way. So this book is about this hybrid woodworking method And I'm trying to evaluate all the things that make the hybrid woodworking method work. But at the same time, in my head, if someone just put me in a pure power tool shop tomorrow, I'd be just fine. I'd be able to to work in that mindset. And if I was put into a pure hand tool area, I'd have a lot more trouble because I'm not as well practiced in it. But I understand the concepts and I I could get my brain into that mode of thinking as well. 
So again, I don't know if this is something that I'd be, I'd be curious to hear from people who listen to us, people who read other blogs and watch other podcasts. Do you find yourself having trouble taking a stance? Because I think for the most part, podcasters are fairly open-minded and, and don't well, like to press I think people. It's a, I think it's a real struggle because in a lot of ways we are held accountable to being open-minded mm-hmm. and you know what what when you started this this topic it really resonates with me because I found myself having to say look this is just the way I do it um specifically in my hand tool school stuff because I guess that is more of a formal teaching environment mm-hmm. um but I find more on the public blog well I mean even today I published a video cutting a dado away I'd never done it before and you know is it going to be the new way I do it probably not but you you feel like you kind of have to shine a spotlight on these different techniques. And when you don't, someone always comments, well, what about this way? Or have you tried it this way? And, you know, lately I've been getting a lot of questions. What do you think about this method or this method? And if I've never done it before, you know, I feel like, well, I should at least try it. You know, I can't really comment that this is the best way to do it until I've tried a bunch of different ways. Unfortunately, there's like 20 ways to do everything in this, in this (laughs) uh, particular craft, but it's a, it's weird. There's like that that kind of public persona where if you don't have an open mind, you're almost are kind of taken to task. Like, well, you should consider it this way. But at the same time, I imagine it can be really frustrating to yeah. the to the viewer, the reader, you know, the especially the new person who's just like, Good God, just tell me which way I should do it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think it's it's a product of what we do. It's a fact that we have to kind of approach things from a defensive nature. Um, like you said, you have to arm yourself with the possibility that someone is going to contest what you're saying and you have to say, okay, I thought about that, but here's the reason why I'm not doing it that way. Right. Um, and it may make us sound like we're very tentative and, and uh, you know, we're not, we're not really committing to a certain way of doing things, but I don't know, maybe that's the, the, just the, I, I like being like that personally. It's fun for me to try different things, Absolutely. but I can see, I can see how it might be frustrating. Um, so, well, you know, I mean, that's like the, the old one, a common question that we always get is the, what should my next tool purchase be? And I think like the old stock answer was, well, what kind of woodworking do you like to do? What, <laughs> what is it that you, you, you think you need? Yeah. And it, and it changes. I mean, I, I look at some of the stuff that I've had from previous years and I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? When I, you know, I gave that piece of advice and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a few things like that. And it even goes into that's why it's so hard when it comes to questions about uh, particular tools. Like, what do you think about this particular model? And it's like, I couldn't tell you because I've never tried it. Yeah. So if there's a technique, right. I mean, I couldn't tell you this is I've done it this way. What you're talking about sounds interesting. Well, let's <laughs> let's have this conversation in another 15 years. And let's just see, have we changed? Are we all just like bitter? <laughs> that's, it's really funny because it's exactly what I was thinking. This could just be a sign of getting older yeah. and getting not necessarily in a bad thing, but getting more experienced. Yeah. I mean, let, let's face it. We're all kind of middle of the road when it comes to the spectrum of experience. None of us are the 30, 40 year KG veterans, but neither of us are also the, you know, two year experience folks. And the more you do it, the more you, as Matt said earlier, kind of become set in your ways. Mm-hmm. Because there are that Matt's example of what tool should I buy next is a great example because we we've all had that kind of touchy feely. What do you want to do next? What's your next project? And I found myself lately actually having more of a definitive answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, based on my experience, if I were to do it all over again, this would be my next tool. Right. Um, and I don't so, even think we have to wait 15 years to do it. Ask us in a year and I bet you we'll <laughs> each have a little bit different answer. And yeah. And I'm in two years. That'll be a different answer. And I'm totally fine with that. But if I ever start using th- words like best and only someone kick me into nards because 
I, I'd like to still think, even once I get set in my own ways, that I'm going to be open-minded for people having other ways to do things. You could, I, you could probably go work at a woodworking magazine if you started saying, best way, only way. Right, right. Um, well, I can, I can imagine trying to explain that one to Sam. Like, I've got to get a ticket to Arizona. Why? Because Mark said only and best. So i, I got to <laughs> go over there and kick him. i got to do some kicking. All right, let's move out of this stuff. Uh, real quick, I did want to mention, I put up a post today about Woodworking Safety Week evolving to something a little bit different uh, called Woodworking Safety Day. And the idea is just to condense it down because uh, I know just kind of behind the scenes conversations we've had um, uh, between us and, and other people that uh, frequent our websites, that the whole week-long thing is just a little long in the tooth. You know, it's it's something <laughs> that we, we're five years into this and it seems it's extending it over the course of a week. It's a lot of work for people and I think everyone's just kind of stretching to come up with something interesting to take <laughs> up that time frame. And I don't think we need to do that. I think we can really it's have a day. funny because when you posted that, I was just curious. And I looked at, I have a safety uh, category on my blog and I just pulled it up. And it's like safety week. The first year I did like four posts. Second year I did seven posts. I did one every single day. Third year I did two posts. Yeah. Fourth year I did one post. Exactly. Right. So I it's just, like one good gem of content. If you're going to get involved, that's all you really need to do. And I think we're going to really raise the quality, raise the bar a little bit on, on what people are talking about, less regurgitation and just more interesting stuff that are, you know, the, the conversation can last all week long. I don't care about that. Um, it's just the, let's not make it a week long holiday you know, right. about yeah, safety. You, you can have one day where oh, just, yeah, you can have a, you can have a single link, a single webpage, and it's going to have tons and tons and tons of information that you could then yourself distribute out through the week and you'll still find a ton of information out there yeah exactly so it's may uh, May 1st that's going to be the day every year um no particular reason other than that's the first day of the week that we were doing safety week before so uh, i better get cracking on my my sauce stop review then Hmm. didn't you already do that two weeks from today isn't it yeah Uh, exactly i better get in there and start like uh setting off some breaks and stuff (laughs) check it out (laughs) all right so let's move into around the web we've got a lot of links here so we'll try to plow through them i've got a few myself Uh, guild member daniel started a new woodworking website it's called woodscommunity.com and it's uh new you know and as with any new woodworking community website it takes a while for it to pick up some steam but Check it out. Uh, you know, that you would think that there's no room for things like new community-based woodworking websites to come along, but we've seen a few in the past few years that have really uh, made a mark, you know. So something like this, if it if uh if it's run well and it's got a lot of features that you like, stick around, hang out there and uh tell Daniel we said hi. Um it's beautifully built though. It's a very nice-looking website. Sweet. All right. Uh we've got another one here sent in from Mark, uh more wood blogspot.ie it, it's basically a website um dedicated i think it, it's pretty much a business but it's on a blogspot website they do um like color and stabilization and impregnation of of materials into wood you know so for like turning blanks and um i don't know whatever else you would want to use that stuff for uh to stabilize wood so it kind of just pulls it into the fibers um that's a service they provide so uh we'll put the link in the show notes for that if you're interested in something uh cool like that I wonder how big of a piece they can do. Like how far can the, the material penetrate? Ooh, Maybe I should accepted. scour the website. They probably have some information on that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I uh, got another here uh, from this one. Who sent this in? Adam. And this is a video on YouTube of a dude turning a very large bowl. Oh, <laughs> big bowl. Starts nice. from like, you know, like a boulder, basically. And he turns it into a giant bowl. 
very fast motion, and, and but it is a few minutes long. So you see the whole process. It's it's very very impressive. And then he fills it with M and M's at the end mm. and goes swimming in it. <laughs> Delicious. Okay. Oh, and, uh, M&Ms. Mark, you remember early in the early days when we got that nice big care package from Mars M&M's? And... Oh, yes, from uh, Bob, actually, yes. if I remember oh, correctly. Oh, I still, I dream of that. When packages show up, my family always goes, is that another one? <laughs> I always say, would I tell you? Yeah, I mean, it, that was nice. That was really nice. Um, Bob, if you're listening, you know. <laughs> or if anybody wants to ply us with candy, cash, or <laughs> assorted items. Actually, you know what? I don't think Bob works there anymore, unfortunately. Oh, with our mistaken. luck, he probably works at like a Kleenex. It, well, he pr- I heard he got fired because he was sending too much free candy to people. <laughs> that was exactly it. <laughs> I don't know. Which talk online ruined my life. <laughs> Something like that. All right. Um, another link here from Tom, our buddy Tom Buell. He sent in a link. This is a Google Plus post. And it, there's a gentleman whose name that I know I've seen him around. I don't know him personally. but um, And correct the pronunciation if you know better than I do. Barty? Barty? B-A-R-T-E-E. Lamar. But anyway, um, his brother, whose name is Stony Lamar, I'm pretty sure that's the coolest name on the planet. <laughs> Heck yeah. Uh, he had an exhibit at the Asheville Art Museum, and this is a, a little pictorial um, uh, like showing of some of the stuff that was on display. Really inspirational work. Tom thought it was excellent and wanted to pass that along, so check it out. Sweet. Oh, man, I got a lot here. And my last one is Wilbur. He's doing a talk on Japanese tools at the New York City Woodworkers Guild on April 22nd. We'll put the link in the show notes to Wilbur's site where you can check it out, or you can go to the New York Woodworkers uh, Guild Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash NYC Woodworkers. So if you want to hear Wilbur talk about Japanese tools, that's a good place to do it. Wow, that's sweet. Everybody yeah. should show up and just make them really nervous and stare at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I got a couple here. Uh, these are both YouTube videos that were sent in. One was by Tony. Tony sent in this uh, really cool, it's it's a, it's an older episode, apparently uh, Handmade in America. It's a 1980s uh, series, probably PBS or something, and they interviewed Sam Maloof. And the neat thing about this, I was just kind of doing a really quick uh, glance through this to see if there was some big highlights in there. And you see Sam, of course, working at the bandsaw. You see him working at the router table, kind of assembling things. I'm sure he has some really great inspirational stuff that he talks about in there. But talk about safety day. I mean, there's some stuff in here that I definitely think will be examples of what not to do if we ever have links to it in safety day. Like using a router one-handed as he's pulling it towards himself, completely freehand. That's just freaky. Matt, you have an experience with a router, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, if if Sam was still alive today, I probably would have a little discussion about potential, um, yeah, (laughs) upcuts and stuff like that. So. Nice. One of my favorite videos ever is, is Matt's router dancing on a table in front of him. <laughs> yeah, as I was uh, texting people from the emergency room on drugs, that was another good one. Mm-hmm. Very nice. <laughs> All right. So the uh, the other link that we have here uh, was sent in by Brad, and this is Adam Savage from uh, MythBusters attempting to do hand cut dovetails. And uh, Tony, uh, Brad wrote on here, I found it rather funny because he really doesn't know what he's doing, which he readily admits at the beginning of the video. Uh, so if people are fans of Mythbusters and woodworking, you might get a kick out of it. Again, I kind of w- watched this video real quick, and there are definitely moments in there where you're just like, oh, oh, why, no, don't, oh, why are you doing that? Oh, stop it, please. That's, oh, you're making it painful. It It is refreshing to watch, though, because it he takes it so seriously, and he's got, like, <laughs> You know, everything lined up and, you know, all his tools lined out and he's just so precisely focused. And it's just like, you know, once you cut a couple of them, it's the 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 mystique goes away. 
Yeah, well, like like 15 minutes to do the first one is what it kind of looks like. So, and then you're like, yeah, after that one, eh, I get it down to two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, let's see. I I've got my single measly entry to this, but there is a um, <clears throat> YouTube YouTube video on a guy that built a treadle lathe, and it just went up. I want to say like Monday of this week. And, uh, you know, he's, I think, over 8,000 views at this point. Um, it's not a channel that gets a heck of a lot of views. But this guy built just the mother of all treadle lathes. And whether you, you care about foot-powered lathes or not, the joinery in this thing is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's like Japanese temple joinery with just some traditional timber frame joinery thrown in. A lot of very cool interlocking and peg joints as he builds this whole thing to the point where when you watch it, you're like, oh, he he screwed up. There's a, you know, oh, he misaligned his mortise. So uh, and then suddenly he sticks something in there. You're like, whoa, it just it's a very, very cool video. So uh, nice. go check it out. And actually, the the guy that left it, Chris, who created the video, his channel is actually really good. He's uh, kind of an, an odd guy. He's got some cool projects on there. So check it out. Nifty. Sweet. Very cool. All right, let's move into our kickback segment where you can uh, kick some stuff back to us from previous episodes. Matt, if you want to read those too. Okay, well, uh, this is Graham who actually had sent us the link for his grandfather's uh, uh, apprenticeship papers. Mm -hmm. And he says, regarding hard wax, to my knowledge, it's nothing like polyurethane varnish diluted with white white spirit. We stocked this brand, and we'll have a link in this too. Uh, It just says hard wax oil, but we'll have the link in there. Uh, although it seems targeted at flooring, we use it on so many items that require a natural finish in place of Danish tongue or linseed oil. It's really easy to use, and you can have a glassy finish or a more rough and ready if you wanted. Perhaps one of you guys could give it a try and then say how much you hate it. <laughs> That's what we <laughs> oh, love to do. I'm looking forward to that. I love anything that I have to say I hate. I hate it. All right, next one. It's another finishing one, actually. Yeah, uh, and this one comes in from Nick. Uh, says, I just wanted – and this actually apparently this is this is uh, must be our Brit uh, listeners. I just wanted to chime in. The Osmo Pollux oil finish that you mentioned in the last show, I work full-time as a production wood turner, and one of my regular jobs is turning handles for espresso machines. I like the job already. I could use one right now. Uh, each handle is sanded up to 400 and then gets three coats of Osmo, which gives a great depth and shine to the wood. The finish is even durable in the hot, wet conditions that the barista is subjected to. I can't compare it to general finishes as I've not used them, but uh, Nick says he highly recommends the Osmo. Very cool. And that's what we were talking about last week is alternatives, and I guess that's uh, not a bad product. So, hey, look at us. International show. Nice. (laughs) And we probably slaughtered the names. Most likely. Or I did. All right. Moving on to voicemail, we've got another one from Demented. I mean, MedTech Woodworker. (laughs) That never gets old. Hi guys, good morning. This is Russell, the MedTech Woodworker. Uh, two things I'd like to call and congratulate. I just saw on YouTube that you were posted inside the Highland Woodworker. It's great things, great things, guys. And second thing, I've been wondering, I've never seen on Wood Talk Online being discussed about the Chopsmith Mark V. What do you guys think about it? I've never seen it being discussed. I think that it would be quite inaccurate to be shifting setups back and forth, but then again, maybe it's not. All right, thanks. Bye. All right, well, first off, thanks for reminding me because I forgot to even mention that we did have a little clip at the end of the latest Highland Woodworker where I just generally gave an overview of the the Wood Whisperer community, which, of course, includes the forum and this podcast you're listening to now. So we had a little plug there at the end of the show, which was really nice. Nice to see. It's always a good show. Charles Brock can't help but put you in a good mood. The guy's just so peppy. Yeah, it is good. It's and, And this one in particular 
this one was interesting because it yeah. was a, like the Jeff Miller story was was kind of emotional. I'm I'm sitting there in the shop taking pictures and I'm like, what what is going on? I'm like, <laughs> I'm almost starting to tear up. I'm like, wait a minute, what am I watching here? <laughs> you know? But it was really good. I mean, he's gone through some crap, uh, health issues and things like that, and it was um it was a really special episode. I thought it was one of the best. Not just because we were in it, but <laughs> <laughs> that just... that was the icing on the cake, actually. But yeah, no, it, it's I always look forward to those. I really have to admit that it's like one of those when those come in, I will deliberately set time aside even more than I do mm-hmm. already from the family and say, all right, everybody shut the heck up or daddy will be angry. Yeah, not and, like that has any weight in this house. But well, and you know what? And I'm glad it, it, I'm glad that it's doing it seems to be doing fairly well. It's kind of like. I don't know the woodworking project-based shows that that we tend to do. Um, those are good. I mean, and they serve their purpose. But it is really cool to have, and and this is how um, uh, how Chuck actually describes it himself as like a a woodworking magazine in the form of video. And I think right. it's a fantastic format. Absolutely love it. Can't can't recommend yeah. it highly enough. Absolutely. I mean, when they do the interviews, I I love the fact that they're actually with the individual so you can work, you know, see they're in their own environment Mm -hmm. versus, you know, we do a great job when we have interviews by we, I mean, you, Mark, and then Shannon (laughs) or whoever else. But when I do an interview, it's just painful through and through. But having you seeing them in their actual environment and and being able to bring up things specifically in their shop or something adds that extra layer. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So you're saying we're lazy, though, for using Skype. Uh, yep. I wouldn't say lazy. Well, low lazy, budget. just me. You, you're amazing. <laughs> very, very low budget, maybe. Well, um, <laughs> once, once we get the wood talk, um, jet, we'll, we'll do it in person. There you go. Oh, can we, we can't I, wait for that. All right. So to, anyways, yeah, so on to his question. Woodworker. He wanted to know about the shopsmith. Now you guys are familiar with that. It's like the transformer woodworking tool, right? Heck yeah. My, my father-in-law has one. I was trying to figure out how to transform it down into a small box to put in the back of my car when early on. Yeah, so make that cool noise when it transforms. Unfortunately, no. I had to do it with my mouth. That was the only way I could get that sound. Nice. Um, so just to run down, I'm looking at their website now. It's a table saw, a disc sander, a lathe, a horizontal boring machine, a drill press, a shaper, and a router. So this thing can do quite a bit. The generally speaking, every time I've heard about this, I've either heard someone who has one and they're thrilled with it. Or they had one and it was integral in getting them into woodworking and then they eventually had a situation where they could get like separate machines and moved on from that. So right. I've never heard anyone necessarily complain about it in spite of the fact that you do have to switch it over from one operation to another. Right. right. Yeah, my my father-in-law loved it for years. I always hear it as like one of those people absolutely love it or it's not the greatest thing in the world. They inherited it and they just never found the time to purchase anything else he absolutely loved it because he had the bandsaw attachment for it too mm-hmm. and that was what he used all the time on there that and the he'd use it as a as a lathe um i've seen some of the demonstrations of it and i'm sorry but even when i'm watching the demonstrator it still looks like it takes a little bit more effort to actually get <laughs> right. it to transform to one thing to the other oh, sure sure uh, but i think at some point i think every woodworker when they really start maybe uh becoming more in depth with the, what they're doing starting to expand their projects you get to that point where it's kind of nice having dedicated tools. Yeah. And and so I think it's neat for a beginning woodworker. And I don't mean everybody beginning woodworker go out and get one. But at some point, there is just something about having a dedicated machine with specific things that you don't have to kind of compromise. Sure. And you have to wonder, is there a compromise? You know, can That's one true. tool really do all these things well um, as compared to having dedicated tools? And it sounds... You know, like the ultimate first world problem. Oh, I had to, 
I had to switch this around and change it from a planer to a joiner or, you know, and it took me five minutes. <laughs> but, you know, that actually, it really interrupts the flow, <clears throat> you know, the workflow that you have going. And, you know, I, I get this comment a lot because I, I have a joiner bench and a regular workbench. People are like, doesn't it take up a lot of space? And it's like, until you've worked with both, I can't, I can't explain to you why it's so cool. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think eventually you're like, well, you know, I need more capacity in my lathe or I want a bigger tabletop for my table saw. And you kind of, quote unquote, graduate away from the shopsmith. Yeah, and I think if you have a small space that necessitates this and you want to get a lot of woodworking done, you overlook some of those setup issues. And, yeah, and maybe true. if it's not the perfect tool for this particular thing, at least it's getting the job done. So I what think do they if, even what do they even cost? I don't know. I'm looking on the site now. It looks like their Mark Seven Power Pro model with Pro Fence Table System is uh, just under four grand, and then huh. they have a couple other models at thirty six hundred and thirty three hundred. So ultimately for that amount of uh, money, I mean, I mean, if you're getting one of these handed down to you, that's one thing, but even at that cost, you can get quite a few tools for $4,000. Yeah, right? It better be a lot better than I think it is at <laughs> some of those tasks for that kind of money. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, sometimes uh, necessity dictates you, you do something like that. But if you're at the point that you're ready to drop 4,000 bones on a, on a tool like this, you know, if you do have the space, you you might be better served looking at uh, separates and, and, you know, seeing what else is out there. I remember the last time I had a conversation about this, I remember so, somebody pointed out that, like, their favorite feature of it is that you can use it as a horizontal boring machine. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm like, couldn't you purchase a horizontal borer for, for much less? They're like, yeah, probably, but this one works really good. <laughs> this one goes to 11. <laughs> That's exactly the type of attitude they had. Right. Like, okay, cool. Uh, I've, I've used that logic before. Um, okay, moving on to our emails. Got one here from Steven. He says, I'm relatively new to woodworking, and I'd like to start building my hand tool collection. I already own a basic Stanley block plane, and I've been doing some research on the different kinds of hand planes to start off with when I found this article from Fine Woodworking. This is like right up the alley of what we were talking about earlier yeah. with, with uh, basic beginner uh, questions, uh, but it is a fundamental one. So this article is one bench plane can do it all. And it's talking about the Lee Nielsen number 62 low angle jack. Uh, so he says, from a price perspective, the Lee Nielsen 62 seems like a great idea. It would also save on storage space. I'm currently confined to an apartment, but it also seems like a bit much since I don't really do any milling by hand at this point. So my question to you guys is, should I go for the multi-purpose Lee Nielsen or stick with individual planes and build my collection uh, as I need them? Thanks for the help. Love the show. Um, the reason I gave this question to myself is because this is currently on my mind as I'm taking a stance on things and, <laughs> and finally making some decisions in my life. Um, I actually think that article is dead on personally. If you don't have any other planes right now and you, it sounds like he's not even quite like he knows he's not going to do milling, but he still isn't quite sure exactly what he's going to need to do. Then a versatile tool like a bevel up plane, uh, like this number 62 is fantastic for that because we've, we've talked about this numerous times before how you could change your bevel angle and that changes the actual angle of attack of the blade to the wood so you can have a very versatile um, you know response depending on what you're working with. Uh, the length of the plane is kind of like in that middle ground. You could still do smoothing with it, but you can also do some, uh, some minor jointing tasks. Uh, and I really think this is probably going to be the most versatile choice. And then later, if he does go to... I don't know, he wants to add more planes to his collection. It isn't like the 62 is just going to sit there and collect dust. Um, that could then become an integral part of the total setup should he choose to add more planes later. Um, so I don't know if you guys have a different opinion on that, but that's how I feel. Yeah, I was going to make my stance. I completely disagree. I, I think 
Actually, I think God bless Stephen because he's got the right idea. So many people get so caught up and it can do all these things. And you're like, wait a minute, I have a planer and a joiner. You know, there's so many people focused on the milling aspect of bench planes. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're not doing any milling by hand at this point, the planes you should be looking at are joinery planes. Or if you want to get a bench plane, a smoother, because yes, the, the jack sole is not that much longer than the smoother, but it's substantially longer that you can actually have some trouble smoothing a surface. If it's, I mean, you think about it, the smoothing planes taking will be generous in say three thousands of an inch shaving. Most of us set it even thinner than that. Your board has to be flat within a thousandth or two thousandths of an inch along the length of that 18 inch jack plane. Mm -hmm. Whereas the smoothing plane you know, they vary in length, but we'll say 12 inches down to about eight inches, some even smaller. That's a pretty big difference when you're talking about that kind of tolerance and flatness. So when you try to smooth your board with a jack plane, you're going to end up a lot of skip and you're going to end up planing a lot more because of that longer sole. And all you're trying to do is just smooth out the board. <clears throat> if you're going to use it as a shooting plane, okay, the greater mass is nice, but a smoother could do that as well. And then really, the only other purposes are milling. You know, when you talk about switching out blades and things like that, it comes down to jointing and comes down to, you know, the thicknessing of stock. And I just feel like if you're going to get more into hand tools, you'd be better off with maybe a nice rabbiting block plane or a router plane or something like that that's going to help you refine your joinery rather than help you mill your boards. Yeah, in, in general, in the big picture, I agree when you're looking at which plane to add, go out of the world of bench planes and start looking at joinery planes. Um, I guess part of the problem is I'm, I'm maybe we don't have enough information here because my, the answer could change depending on what his existing setup is. When the way he's describing it, I'm assuming he's got power tools. And if he's pulling a board off the planer or the joiner, I don't know that he would have any major problems using a plane of that length uh, yeah. to do some smoothing. Uh, but so I, you know, maybe incorrectly made the assumption that he is using some power tools. So thinking, what is the first bench plane I'm going to get when I've already got these power tools in place? Um, but but I would agree if we're going back to okay, more generically, what is the first hand tool that I should start to add? I'm much more on board with uh, joinery planes before you even worry about things like bench planes, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, it, and it goes a little bit back to the shopsmith thing. It's kind of the one plane to do it all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've actually done a demo on this for the hand tool school where I actually took a bevel up jack and I swapped out all the blades. I took a rough sawn board and got it perfectly smooth using that single plane. And it's kind of a pain in the butt, <laughs> to be honest. You know, when you, when you have to swap out blades to go between tasks and I actually found myself in the demo, um, I, I'd flatten the faces and I'd flatten one edge. And then I was like, Oh, I really need to shoot the end. And I'd already switched the blade. And I was like, oh, man, I got to switch the blade back to go back to use my shooting board. And it was it was a royal pain in the butt. See, but, here's so, a, but here's a key difference. You're approaching it from pure hand tool perspective. For someone like right. me, as, as more of a, a hybrid approach, that plane doesn't need to change what it does very often and can satisfy my needs on a more broader scope. Because a lot of the work I'm doing, you know, I don't need to tax uh, its uh, rough milling ability necessarily because I'm never really going to have to do that. Um, I'm only worrying about some smoothing tasks and maybe some mild jointing tasks. So for, for me, and I actually going to confess, I dropped some money on the 62 just recently and it's on back order um, <laughs> because what I want to do is I actually want to test out, uh, I get that thing tuned up and I'm going to see how long I can just use that as my only bench plane that I go to, not my only hand tool, um, my only bench plane. And I'm going to see, can I leave my, um, I've got another bevel up smoother and I've got a number seven joiner plane. 
can I leave those two in the cabinet and not touch them for a few months and see if this thing, this uh, number 62, can do everything that I need a bench plane to do? Uh, but it's a very different approach than, than what you would take, Shannon. Well, it's interesting because essentially we agree. Right, right. It's <laughs> just from two different perspectives, really. You know, I'm a little concerned about going with a longer plane when you're not, you know, I think you're going to end up working more. Right. And the lighter, smaller footprint of a smoother, I think, is going to be a little bit more versatile for that quote unquote, hybrid woodworker. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just excited that Steven has come to the conclusion that he's not getting caught up in the whole milling phenomenon. Um, and coming from the perspective of someone who does work entirely by hand, um, a lot of people hate it. And a lot of people try it and go, man, this sucks. Mm -hmm. And they move <laughs> away from it. And then they end up with, you know, well, if you went all Lee Nielsen, you've got six, seven, eight hundred dollars worth of planes that just gather dust now. And <laughs> it's a it's a little frustrating. So the one plane to rule it all um, argument is cool. But I think everybody so far, because everybody's tackled this, has tackled it the wrong way. You know, just by saying it can mill an entire board from rough to flat, that doesn't mean it can rule at all, you know, because most of us don't do that. So, yeah, essentially, we agree. Dang it. I was hoping for a fight. So, well, sort of. We sort of disagreed, but then agreed. It's just weird. What you about know, you? Really bites us. I, I'm sitting here on the <laughs> fence, and I agree with both of you. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. That helps. <laughs> yeah, no problem. That settles it. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're uh, up, dude. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on to this next question. This one comes in from Baron, and he's asking, looking at photos in woodworking magazines and online, I see nicely done dovetails and very clear knife lines leftover from marking out the boards well you won't if you watch that uh, uh the savage video you'll definitely see some crazy stuff going on there um but i don't seem to see these knife lines on antique furniture is this just a modern technique to prove the piece was handmade is it just that many antiques have been refinished and the lines erased by that process or is it simply too much trouble to eliminate the lines before finishing anyway do you leave your marking lines and if so why um, you know, I kind of was wondering about this too. Is this a modern thing? Because when you look at some of the, the older pieces, you definitely don't necessarily see them on there. I always just kind of assumed that it was probably because the piece either has really been worn or oftentimes if you look at some of the older dovetails, I mean, especially on, on, depending on when they were made, uh, they pretty much just kind of eyeballed it more or less from is my understanding. It wasn't necessarily a, a quick layout here and there. It was just cut, 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 fit. Okay, that works. Because if you really look at some of the dovetails out there on older pieces, uh, they, they don't look the greatest. <laughs> they look pretty sloppy overall, and that's because – it wasn't necessarily, especially on the back of, say, a drawer box, it wasn't something to be fashionable and to be, you know, like uber cool. It was just a joint to keep things together so the box didn't fall apart when you opened it. So how um, about now? What what do you do for your current stuff? Do you leave it or do you plant them away? Uh, if they're there, they're there. If not, I, I, you know, they're gone. To be quite honest with you, I don't even pay attention to them <laughs> because oftentimes when I do it, I, I – I know for a fact that when I do dovetails and I'm getting that drawer side ready, I usually kind of plan on coming in and touching it up. So to some degree, they're going to be removed. In fact, I do have drawers where on one side you do see it. And on the other side, apparently uh, in my adjustments, I must have removed enough material. Right. When I saw this question come in, it made me think immediately. I know there's an article out there talking and kind of making poking fun at this about doing machine shopped dovetails with your router and then coming back in and scribing in a line to make it look like 
you know, a <laughs> hand cut dovetail. So that Jeez. makes me think even that more. That rings a bell. Is... I think I remember reading something like that too. Yeah, That's I don't terrible. know if it was like an April Fool's joke or, or, yeah. or what was going on, but it, so it makes me think because of that. Because you know, we hear all these things that it's more of a modern day thing. Because also, if you think about it, modern day woodworking resembles an awful lot like engineering. You know, modern day engineering. I mean, mm-hmm. how many times? Did you think like a master from back in the 1700s was breaking out a pair of calipers to do something? I mean, we really are obsessed with making sure that joints are, you know, a particular thickness and a particular, you know, symmetry and everything else. I I just there's a part of me that really feels that it's a modern day thing to somehow emphasize that this piece is far more unique than that one that you just picked up from Ikea. Yeah, totally. I think it's a badge of honor. Yeah. Because of the fact that when you look, they're like crisp, clear knife lines. Um, <clears throat> when when you look at antiques, and I've looked at a lot, I think you can make a case either way. Um, it depends upon the piece it's made. But I've seen a lot of knife lines on antique furniture personally. But I've also seen some where, eh, did it just wear out? Who knows? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm I'm with Matt. I don't really pay much attention to my own. I think I don't think I've ever made a conscious effort to remove them. But I've never really thought of them as a as a decorative element, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just seem to get removed in the process. Just as right. part of what you're doing to size a drawer and, and make sure it's a piston fit, you're usually taking a few passes and uh, it becomes almost insignificant at that point. But um, I don't see personally, I would never go out of my way to retain them, um, to answer his question specifically. I don't know. It seems kind of silly. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's kind of, uh, it's okay. It, you could look at the, the dovetails themselves and kind of get a pretty good idea if those were cut by hand. I don't need to see a uh, a perpendicular line to prove it to me, you know. Right. And usually it's even like in the spacing and, you know, because mm-hmm. oftentimes, especially like when you see Frank Cloud's cut, cut uh, dovetails, I mean, there, there's nothing in there about like, okay, I got to make sure it's this size and this size. It's like, all right, I'll do one here, one here, one here, one here. Yeah. You know, so each one is slightly unique. So, right. and then if you do it with a router, well, you know, how many lead uh, templates do you have that you can make sure that it's spaced properly and then maybe try to foe it a little bit, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Shannon, a saw question, something new. Yeah, let's see. I uh, This is from David. He says, I know the difference between a crosscut and rip saw, but what are the differences between dovetail saw, tenon saw, carcass saw, and sash saw? Uh, essentially, it is a matter of size. Um, it, it, it's a mixture of how it's filed, whether it's crosscut or rip, and size. So traditionally, the dovetail saw is filed rip, and it's the smallest of the saws. Uh, I'm not even going to give you a size range anymore because that's kind of been thrown out the window. There used to be about 10 inches long. Now there's quite a few 11 and 12 inch dovetail saws out there, but it is a, a rip saw. It's got a much smaller depth of cut under the back. The tenon saw is really the biggest of these. It's also filed rip. And I mean, they can be 18, 20 inches long with, you know, four, four and a half inches of cut under the back. Uh, down to maybe 14 inches long with three or three and a half inches of cut uh, capacity into the back. Carcass saw is smaller than that in the 12 to 14 inch range, and it is a cross-cut saw. It's meant for cross-cutting boards, cutting carcass pieces to length. Um, and then the sash saw is also a cross-cut saw, but it's bigger. It's kind of around the same size as the tenon saw. Mm. And I've I've never quite figured that one out. Because when you're making sash, when you're making window sash, you're dealing with kind of narrower pieces to frame out the window. 
Whereas if you're making cabinetry or carcasses, you're dealing with wider pieces. It seems to me the wider sash saw should be called the carcass saw and the carcass saw should be called the sash saw. But <laughs> I wouldn't, they didn't ask me in, in 17 four or whatever. Um, but that's, that's the idea. I have a carcass saw that I use for many, many years. And I actually have moved to a sash saw for most of my bench work because I like the longer blade. I've got a, a 16 inch long blade. It's great for cutting eight, 10, 12 inch wide boards much better than the little 12 inch carcass saw I have. Hmm. So there's some pitch differences and things like that, but I mean, it just comes down to um, finer teeth for certain things and rougher teeth for others. But that's the 10,000 foot view, I think. Cool. All right. Got a question from Tony. He says, there's a chance that I'll be receiving a mid sixties Delta cabinet saw from my father-in-law. He has all the parts and it runs smoothly, but I'm concerned that there are things unseen that I might need to tune up or work on. I currently have a Delta hybrid table saw and I strongly dislike the exposed motor. He goes into details about how his son likes to uh, go into the shop and leave things in the belt (laughs) for him and warns me that my son is going to uh, wind up loving the shop, which uh, oddly enough, he already does. He's like, you know, like a, I don't know, like a mosquito toward one of those blue lights. (laughs) He goes outside (laughs) and he goes right for the shop and just walks in and his eyes get real big and he runs around like a maniac. So So you're saying every time he comes to the shop, he gets a shock. Yes. We shock him on the way in. We're trying to reverse his, uh, his habit there. Okay. So he says the cabinet saw would fix all of these problems and adds a bit of an art deco feel to the workshop. Should I be concerned about the saw? What should I look for to determine if it's working correctly? Any safety features that it might be missing um, that might make it just unsafe to use, Tony. Um, Here's some very generic things that I'm just going to mention off the top of my head. Well, it was off the top of my head when I wrote it down earlier. Uh, First of all, you want to take a look at that power cord. Make sure that the connection to the motor is good. The actual um, uh, connection on the end is good. You don't want, obviously, no frayed parts. Uh, maybe if you could um, get a closer look at where the connections are actually made inside the, the like the motor plate itself, check that out. Just make sure everything is in good shape there um, for the electric stuff. Turn the motor on. Uh, if your father-in-law is using it, it sounds like it's cutting, it's working, so there probably is uh, not a whole lot wrong there. Look all over the place for loose bolts. Take the top off. Look inside. Look at the trunnions. Look at uh, all the internal parts and make sure everything is nice and tight and lubricated. Uh, Make sure that the tilt and height mechanisms go all the way. You have full range and that they're free of obstruction. Also, you want to test that fence. Make sure the fence is nice and um, secure, locks down real well. As for safety devices, it's an older saw. So I'm guessing there's probably not going to be a whole lot on there in terms of safety. But there are aftermarket things that you can use. Um, Even if you do nothing more than add a micro jig splitter on there with a zero clearance insert. That alone is going to uh, to, to really up the safety of the saw. Uh, get yourself an aftermarket guard. There's plenty of those out there. You could even try and see if there's an aftermarket splitter or uh, I think a arriving knife upgrade after the fact. I don't even know if anybody's doing those at this point because it's a lot harder to do, but you certainly can get an aftermarket splitter uh, that bolts into the saw permanently. Um, and I think that's really about it. I mean, ultimately, if anyone else has anything they can suggest, go for it. Um, but as long as everything's working, those older tools were really well made. Um, and it sounds like the one you're getting or possibly getting was well taken care of. So I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot that you're going to have to do. 
you know, a, a good resource might be if he's just looking for ideas, maybe things to look at or just to watch somebody else go through it is remember Steve Shanessy over at Popular Woodworking had the Delta Unisaw restoration oh, video yeah. series. Uh-huh. You're reading my mind, Matt. Wait yeah, I've, I've got the link right here. I went ahead and I grabbed this. We'll go ahead and throw this into the show notes. Yeah, oh, I've been that. signed out for some reason. Um, but yeah, that that one might be a really good one to take a look at. And I know he he went through the whole thing. He ran into a couple problems, if I remember right. So, but at that, if I also if I remember right, that was because that saw was like sitting around unused for a while. <laughs> right, right. Well, cool. So that might be some some good places to look. Um, there, but yeah, there's me... a, a website. I think it's the Old Tools Forum. Oh yeah, um, old woodworking tools or old woodworking machines. Yeah, yeah. I have a buddy locally that likes to restore these old things, and he sandblasts them and repaints them and everything. And that's like his uh, his playground is that forum. There's a lot of good information on there as well. Cool. Old old woodworkingmachines.com, I think is what it is. Yeah, o w m m dot com. I used to have my my oh, okay. really old saws were on there at one point. I was trying to show them off, and then I got to the point that I'm like, these look really nice, don't they? You want to buy them? <laughs> <laughs> Nice. So, all right, let's go jump into this next one then. Uh, this comes from Mike. And Shannon, you might be able to help me out a little bit with this one. I know, uh, Mark, you probably have an opinion because you've always got an opinion. Sometimes. <laughs> now that you're older, too, you're, you're older, your opinions are wiser. Uh, get, off my, get off my lawn, kids. There you go, you kids. Uh, so, anyways, Mike's asking, what do you guys think about character grades of wood? I saw the Bob Taylor video posted on Shannon's company's website, and it really struck a chord with me. Strangely enough, I've been frustrated because I have a hard time finding B-grade wood. For example, I wanted to build a copy of a farm-style dining table we saw at a store and really liked. It was built from white oak that was full of tight knots and small cracks. A trip uh, to my local hardwood dealer only revealed highly pristine white oak. Similarly, my woodworking friends have warned me against the perils of cherry sapwood as if my project might self-combust if I used the stuff. (laughs) Me, it adds beauty. If I wanted something homogenous looking, it would stain. I would stain or paint it. Ultimately, I found I need to go to a a local small scale sawmill to get wood that looks like wood. And be quite honest with the way I feel about this, Mike, is I love wood with character. And that's probably why I've had a few people look at some projects that I've done in the past and say, well, what, what is this right here? And a great example is Aiden's dresser that I did. It's made of cherry. But one thing I really wanted to do is I loved the character, the difference between the sapwood and the heartwood. And sure, there are there can be certain issues with heartwood and sapwood, depending on the species. But I loved the way they looked. It just... As the cherry's getting darker, that sapwood is still so much lighter and is just, to me, is adding more and more character to the piece. So I oftentimes have found that when I was building projects, one, to save a little money, I like to go with like number two commons when I could get a hold of them. Some of the the lesser grades or not number two commons, excuse me, number one commons. Um, And depending on the wood species, these are the ones that are going to have a little bit. Uh, they'll have some of the knots. They'll have some of the odd sizes. They'll have some of the weird sapwood, heartwood kind of things in there. And those are the ones I really like. And the, you, you mentioned also, Mike, that, you know, maybe you have to go to a small scale sawmill to, to get, you know, wood that looks like what you're thinking. That's not a bad idea at all, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, I've seen some <laughs> yeah. of the stuff come out of some of those sawmills <laughs> that I'm like, you paid what for that? Do you know how much I'd have to pay if I went to Shannon's sawmill? <laughs> right. I tend to uh, I tend to like cleaner wood personally. I still think it looks like wood. And unless there's. Unless there is a particular need for the style of the project where knots are welcome, um, I do actually try to get as, as clean a boards as I can get. I appreciate having a nice, uh, pristine 
selection of white oak. But if the project calls for something that's a little knotty, something a little more rustic looking, then obviously that's not going to help me out so much. But uh, personally, I like to build with the cleaner stuff myself, just when when well, I when I have my choice. You're in the majority, Mark, and that's mm-hmm. why he can't find this stuff. <laughs> right. Um, I'm going to drop a a link or I already dropped a link in the show notes of the video that he's talking about, because I think if you guys haven't seen it, it's well worth a look. It's uh, specifically talking about ebony and guitar makers Mm -hmm. and just how ebony forests are really being destroyed because they're looking for pure black ebony. And there's quite a bit of ebony that has a little bit of brown in it. And it's, that is a very, very wasteful side of that industry. But what ends up happening is every sawmill knows that um, North American, specifically American uh, retailers, they, they, they won't sell the stuff. People won't buy it because just like he said, his woodworking friends tell him that, you know, his project will self-combust if he uses sapwood in it. So you get woodworkers like us going out there and digging through looking for this perfect, you know, pristine board. And that's, that's what sells. And that's what's valuable common grade woods it's very very difficult to make any profit on them Mm -hmm. um, because they have the market has driven those prices down so much so frankly if you know of a local uh, kind of mom and pop sawmill that's awesome because that's going to be the place where you can go and get wide slabs and you can get live edge pieces you're not going to find that at most lumber yards because it's all been cut off you don't find live edge stuff at most lumber yards because it's it's a defect. Wayne is considered a defect. So, yeah, you are definitely in the, the majority, Mark. So it's all my fault. It's it is your saying. fault, Mark. You have pushed <laughs> these people in this direction. You need to change your attitude. I'm sorry, Mike. Well, and, and let's be honest. we It's not our fault because we don't make flooring and millwork and molding for a living and run several thousand feet of material yeah molders all day long those jerks yeah you you molder people <laughs> flooring jerks yeah. those millwork houses but you know what you i'm know, gonna start i'm gonna start a website and i'm only gonna sell wood with character and i'm gonna call it but it has a nice personality <laughs> there you go i like that all right shannon you're up okay this is from somebody uh it's from david he says i have been asked to make new rockers for an old windsor style chair approximately 80 to 100 years old My problem is that the seat on one side has warped upward by about two inches and therefore caused the leg on that side to come off the ground. Is there any sensible way to straighten the seat? The seat appears to be made of elm and is approximately five quarters thick. Uh, He says, I've thought about taking the chair apart, steaming the seat and putting it in a clamp until it's straight. I've also considered kerfing the underside of the seat to bend it back into shape. Would either method be sensible or likely to work? Is there some other solution? Well, um, you know, if it is in fact 80 to 100 years old, you might be in luck because if it's older than that, the chances of you getting it apart are very, very slim. Um, old style Windsor chairs are just beautiful construction. It's it's you, they do not come apart because they utilize the the shrinkage of the wood. They put a dry tenon into uh, a wet mortise and the wet mortise shrinks around that tenon and locks it in place. Then they wedge it. Um, Windsor chairs survive very, very well for 300 years because of the way they're constructed. Now, I'm sitting in a Windsor chair right now made by Ethan Allen uh, sometime around 1940, and it is falling apart because it obviously was done with kiln-dried wood. You know, the the seats coming apart, the spindles in the back come apart. I've re-glued the thing like six times, and mm-hmm. it just, essentially, it's all loose joinery. 
And as we know, glue does not fix loose joinery. So he probably should be able to get it apart. And I think his idea of actually steaming the seat and trying to clamp it straight is not a bad idea. Um, I would start there and see where it goes. Um, Two inches is an awful big deflection. Uh, But the other solution is to trim the leg, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. you know, you you trim the legs in order to get it to stop rocking. Um, You may have to do a solution that's a mixture of both because you may not be able to clamp out that kind of deviation and it may just come back. It's going to be a new low rider chair. Yeah. Ooh, that's cool. <laughs> well, and depending two on how the seat legs are shaped, you know, you don't want to cut away so that you can obviously tell that one leg is shorter if yeah, there's yeah. decoration in it. But most Windsor chairs have a straighter, at least a tapered section um, near the bottom below the, the cove and bead stuff. So I don't think I would do the kerfing. Mm, that sounds bad. Yeah, because... Yeah, you got to keep that kerfing to a minimum. This is a family show. <laughs> Stop well, kerfing, everybody. No matter what you do, it's going to show up, you know? <laughs> And <laughs> trying to talk here. Trying sorry, to sorry. I, I keep going back to the shrinkage thing and I laugh. <laughs> the the seat is hollowed out in the middle. So you really don't exactly know how much wood you have to play with there. It's relieved on the bottom near the edges and hollowed in the middle on the top. And in a lot of Windsor chairs, that can be down to under an inch thick. So you may run a curve through there and suddenly you've just curved through the seat itself. Um, so then you'd have to cut a shallower kerf and it probably wouldn't make a difference as far as being able to bend it back. So mm-hmm. if you can get it apart, try steaming it. If that doesn't work, then you may have to trim the leg a little. Hmm. I wonder hmm. if, uh, I guess it depends on, on what the shape is and what the actual condition is. Uh, but what, what is actually happening? Is it just one side that's scooping up or is it, is it a full cup and maybe three part, you know, three legs are still making contact, but the one is just a little bit higher. Cause it almost, if you can get the chair completely apart, I'd almost consider like if the back end is going up that much, could there be some way where you could split the chair down the middle, glue it back together, and then, you know what I mean, shape the edge a little bit? Hmm. Kind of like when you have a really wide warped board, you can right. just, you know, or a cupped board or something, you just uh, cut it down the middle and then put the pieces back together and kind of kill that uh, the cup that way. But I don't know, with the chair, it seems like it might be a little bit of a sensitive area you're going to lose the curve with and things are going to move. The other thing that I think about is I wonder if something else in the chair is forcing that leg up, mm-hmm. if there's some tension brought to bear somewhere else. So if you can get it apart, is the seat actually cupped? Yeah, yeah. Um, there may be some issues going on in the legs itself, how the maybe one of the, the uh, holes was bored incorrectly. Mm. Um, the other thing about Windsor's is they are essentially self-leveling. Because of the way the legs splay out from a central seat, when you sit on it, your weight causes everything to splay out a little bit more. So they do self-level. So does it still rock when you sit on it? Um, of course, he's dealing with a rocker, so that's a little bit different. There is some tension between the rockers mm-hmm. and the front legs. But right. um, take it apart and assess it from there. Um, mm-hmm. and let us know, I guess. Cool. All right, last email we have here from Manny. He says, um, I wish I had uh, really nice music to go along with this. <laughs> he says, First off, let me say that several years back, when I first had the desire to start woodworking, I came across Mark's videos on YouTube, and it gave me a fun, informative resource that was instrumental in my development as a woodworker, and I wanted to thank you. Matt and Shannon, you guys are cool, too. <laughs> How great oh, is shucks. that? Can I get, Sam I want, says that to me all the time, too. I want that printed out and put in my shop somewhere. Sam <laughs> says to you that Mark was really fun and informative resource for her? <laughs> yes. Yes, and that, that I'm cool, too. Was <laughs> instrumental as her, in her development? That is correct. Uh, well, we won't go quite that far, but he just pretty close know. to it. She says something a little bit raunchier. He just doesn't know about it, that's all. 
All right. Uh, he continues on to say, some time ago, I finally made the investment and purchased a couple of big tubs of West System epoxy that I needed for a complex glue-up and have since been using it almost exclusively for my furniture glue-ups. Are there any concerns beyond the increased price that you can think of that I need to look out for? How often do you guys use epoxy? Generally speaking, um, I... I treat it like gold because it costs that much. <laughs> it's expensive. <laughs> Um, I use it a lot more than most because of my uh, lack of humidity and the heat. It's just something that in, in a lot of cases, it's the only adhesive that I could use that gives me enough working time. Um, so I have never found any really adverse effects to using it. It tends to hold for me just as well as any other adhesive I've ever used. Now, I know if you look at some tests out there, I think epoxy, uh, what was it? Probably one of the fine woodworking tests that they've done in the past. I don't think epoxy performed quite as well as some of the other wood glues but I think we're talking about semantics at this point. I think for most of what we're doing with furniture and standard uh, things that we build, epoxy is going to hold plenty well enough. And if you have slightly loose joinery, it might even be a benefit because it might fill those <laughs> gaps for you. Um, so I don't. other than cost, as long as he's mixing it right and the conditions are right, I don't really see any major negative to using it as his uh, exclusive adhesive. Yeah, why know. not? I have several fly rods. Fly rods, fly rods, <laughs> completely covered in this stuff. They, they're fine. Yeah. Um, how often do you guys wind up using it? Do you even use it much for glue ups? I use it to fix stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, so tighten up a knot or mm -hmm. um, kind of stabilize a crack. Like I just used it uh, last night on the big crack on the end of that walnut board just to make sure the crack didn't kind of go any further. Right, right. But that, that's it. I don't use it to glue up joinery, it's just too dang expensive. <laughs> right yeah although i end up I... throwing so much of it away because you mix you know you do one pump yeah. on those west system things and i use like a quarter of what i've already mixed up so i probably <laughs> should should use it on joiner just so i don't end up throwing away that little plastic cup worth mm -hmm. uh what were you gonna I, say I, Matt? I think i can count on my on one hand how many times i've actually used that you know a decent amount of epoxy so it, it's right. not a, something i use that often well there you go all right, so we've got a couple of iTunes reviews. Just want to thank uh, Sandhill Woodworks and Sid Lerook and Jam DL for leaving us a wonderful reviews in iTunes. Uh, Jam DL actually says, "Great podcast. I really appreciate that these gentlemen take everything so serious. They understand that there's no room for any of that humor that gets in the way of those knitting podcasts. <laughs> this is uh, strictly business. Keep up the good work. So thanks for the great review." And if you uh, use iTunes, go into the iTunes store and look us up. Leave us a nice rating there. We'll, we'll uh, either read it on the show or at least, at the very least, mention your name. And also want to mention that today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com and Hardwoods to Go at Hardwoods2Go.com. And one other thing, you can actually make a recurring donation if you want to. Go to WoodTalkShow.com, look in the left-hand column, and you'll see a few links that... Uh, link to uh, PayPal, recurring donation links, and also a one-time donation if you choose to do that. And we always appreciate the support. So thank you for that. You. Also want to thank our uh, some folks who did actually donate, Sean and Jonathan. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. And Matt, how about you? Give them that contact info, and we'll get out of here. All right, folks. Well, you have a comment, a question, or a topic suggestion, maybe something you want to throw into that kickback area. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And of course, if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you'll find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And with that said, it's dinner time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yay. True that. All right. Thanks for I'm listening, go everybody. Rest of my birthday cake. Birthday cake? What kind of birthday cake did you get? Uh, we got chocolate with white frosting oh, with pretty flowers. Ah, that sounds good. <laughs> I have a I have an ice cream cake for my birthday, and uh, no one else eats it. So, no, no, it's just like a, a goofy Carvel thing. Oh man, they're really good. But my problem with ice cream cakes is if you get like you know that that brain freeze from eating your birthday cake I you get brain don't freeze i don't really get that nicole gets that all the time and I, I guess my i'm a little more resistant to it so i don't i've never really had a serious brain freeze but you're, it's like you're a inca- more brainless i guess so it, it, it totally incapacitates her for like 30 seconds when she <laughs> when she has a brain freeze she gets a bad we know her weakness yes put an ice cube on her <laughs> inside of her mouth she'll just collapse on you Uh, Anyway, uh, enough about Nicole and her brain freeze. Uh, Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. See ya. See ya. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.